This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to the final Tuesday in January. Summer's creeping away. I'm Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until 6pm when Done By Law takes over the airwaves. But on the program today, I have a tribute to Joan Coxedge, activist, artist, politician and all-round worker for a better world. Then to the ICJ decision in The Hague last Friday, the ruling, the reaction and the likely consequences and also what has been called the immoral decision by our government following the US to temporarily cut funding for relief work in war-devastated Gaza. Finally, two men who found a better way to demonstrate against the beginning of the Iraq war, painting the no-war slogan on the biggest sale of the Sydney Opera House. But first, Joan Coxedge. On the program last week, I talked briefly about our friend Joan Coxedge, who died earlier in the month. Activist, artist and former politician, and one of those in the early 1970s who worked to get 3CR off the ground. I interviewed Joan many times over many years over various political and social issues and today for the first hour of the program we'll hear three of those interviews. First reminiscing of the women's peace camp outside Pine Gap in 1983. The first significant national protest against the location of an American base on Australian soil. This week, activists have converged on Alice Springs to protest against the US-Australia spy base at Pine Gap, which has been there for the past 50 years. Activist and former politician Joan Coxidge has been there before, and she spoke recently at the Unitarian Church. And this is a slightly edited version of the talk she gave that day. Pine Gap is the most important US electronic surveillance station outside their territory. Its lease comes up for renewal on December the 9th. The US has considered shifting Pine Gap to Guam at a cost of $1,000 million because Australia is now considered unstable. On the other side, underneath a photo of mass troops, it showed a map of Australia pinpointing Pine Gap. Six months before the formal US-Australian agreement for the National Security Agency base, and it's sort of a bit of a mix here, and I'd be interested in what Richard says, but it's a sort of a... NSA is even more secretive, vastly more important than the CIA, and people don't know a great deal about it. But before it was signed, the agreement, construction crews began laying a new road southwest of Alice Springs, miles past the water bores where locals had long wanted a road, and apparently this new road was leading to nowhere, but we know where it was going. So the Pine Gap Treaty was eventually signed on December the 9th, 1966, by Minister Hasluck and US Embassy official Kronk as part of Menzies' defence pact with the United States. It stated that after an initial nine years, either party could terminate the agreement on one year's notice. And in January 1967, the NSA, CIA, whatever he was, he was a top spook, Richard Stallings, flew into Alice Springs to supervise its construction. 
We're not really sure what Whitlam would have done, although he was certainly questioning the way Pine Gap was being run. And on December the 9th, he would have been empowered to act, but he didn't get the chance. Parliament returned on November the 11th, when Whitlam was sacked by Governor-General Kerr. Many years later, I learned that on November the 10th, ASIO Chief Frank Marnie received an extraordinary message from his Washington office stating that the CIA considered Prime Minister Whitlam was a security risk. Prime Minister of a country, because he dared to ask questions, was considered a security risk. Anyone, December the 9th, Whitlam would have been empowered to act, but he didn't get the chance. In October 1977, the agreement was formally renewed by Malcolm Fraser for a further nine years. So over time we learned about Australia's other spooking outfits and the existence of secret treaties and other secret bases, many of them not known to the Prime Ministers of the day. One of the most important was the UCUSA Treaty, UK-USA Treaty, now called Five Eyes, with US at the top of the pyramid followed by the UK and third parties, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. And over the years, we learned a great deal more about the workings of Pine Gap as a highly sophisticated electronic monitoring system which processes satellite information with one of the largest computers in the world. Only a handful of carefully selected top bureaucrats were in on the one-sided arrangement and how it locked us into Washington's war games, giving us permanent underclass status in whatever they decided to do, except we're not alone. Pax Americana is a global problem of monstrous proportions. I first saw Pine Gap at close range in the mid-1970s when I travelled to the Northern Territory as a Victorian member of the ALP's National Aboriginal Affairs Policy Committee. We used Darwin as a central point to meet traditional owners and visit various out-of-the-way settlements, and I decided to go home via Alice Springs to talk with Central Lands Council people and some Aboriginal artists and to suss out Pine Gap on the side. The Alice, named after the wife of a former superintendent of telegraphs, sits in the centre of a vast area of desert and dry riverbeds, smack in the centre of Australia, with Pine Gap Valley nestling 19 kilometres to the southwest in the rocky foothills of the Macdonald Ranges, providing a perfect setting for one of the world's most secretive bases. The idea that Pine Gap is a joint operation is strictly for the birds. Australians are limited to menial jobs and are not represented at top secret levels because certain projects were deliberately designed to keep the Australian government ignorant of what they were doing. As Christopher Boyce pointed out, he worked as a cipher clerk, some of you may remember, in the code room at a Californian aerospace company where top secret messages were deciphered from US bases, including Pine Gap. We got very angry about it all and he blabbed about it, about the double dealing to the Australian government and he ended up in jail on a very, very long sentence. Anyway, to get to Pine Gap, the locals were full of suggestions. Don't go down the highway towards Temple Bar Creek past the Marini water bores, they said, because although the unmarked roads lead straight to Pine Gap's front gate, there's nothing to see except guards, a high wire fence and an internal road. Go round the back where you can see the radomes, but talk with someone who knows the way. By sheer good luck, I met Phil Nitschke, 
who later became a doctor embroiled in euthanasia, but back then he was a field officer with the Northern Territories Parks and Wildlife Service, and he knew the area like the back of his hand. We set off in his four-wheel drive early one morning to beat the burning sun, clambering in and out of his vehicle, opening and shutting gates through large cattle stations, till we eventually pulled up at a steep embankment. We climbed a rocky rise and there it was like a huge moon colony that had fallen from the sky and transformed this ancient land into a futuristic spy base for aliens. Eighteen ugly single-storey concrete buildings and six silver-white radomes, and they're a of a lot more now, but back then six of them glimmered in the sun with each radome containing the dish antennae. Intruders definitely not welcome. <coughs> Perched precariously on a tuft of grass, I made a quick sketch. Sure enough, within a couple of minutes, a patrol car drove up and took our photographs. Every week, a huge US supply plane, a star lifter, flew in late at night with provisions for the invaders. On one memorable occasion, the C-80 Galaxy, then the world's biggest aircraft, brought in a replacement radome weighing a massive 500 tonnes and the tarmac gave way so the wheels got bogged. Alice Springs school kids got a holiday in honour of the occasion. And then during Easter 1981, I was invited to the Alice by a local peace group to give a paper on US bases as part of a broader discussion about our role in Washington's grand scheme. I called my contribution The Real Terrorists, Global Terror by Agents of the Establishment and was surprised when two federal plods turned up to keep an eye on proceedings. The conference wasn't exactly a high-flown affair in a major city. The pair stood conspicuously by the door, telling organisers they'd come to hear what Coxedge had to say, so I obliged them. And this was when terrorism was hitting its straps as a replacement for the communist bogey. In the closing session, conference adopted a statement of concern, similar to ones passed ad infinitum at Victorian Labour Party conferences and invariably ignored by those at the top of the food chain. We marched up to Pine Gap's main gate where I presented the statement to a senior member of the Federal Police addressed to Richard Kruger, CIA head of base at that time. Thanks to my earlier visit, I knew where to go and guided the trekkers through scrub and over rocky ridges to the best vantage point to launch our farewell message, a long banner attached to coloured balloons full of helium. Up it went, drifting slowly across the base and for a few brief moments hung in the air directly over the radome. Miraculously, the banner straightened up in its simple one-word message, peace, stood out against the bright blue sky, and I don't think I was the only one who felt a little weepy. And then at the beginning of 1983, women for survival groups sprang up around Australia to mobilise support for a peace camp at Pine Gap, part of a huge global women's protest movement against militarism like Greenham Common in the United Kingdom, and I was invited to take part. The starting date was November the 11th for good historical reasons. On that date, Ned Kelly was hanged in 1880. The armistice was signed in 1918, and 57 years later, Whitlam was sacked, a crucial issue being the Pine Gap Police, as I mentioned, and that formed the backdrop of our protest. Hundreds of women of all ages, shapes and sizes converged on Alice Springs. They flew in, bussed in, came by car, and I managed to link up with some of the travel-weary in the dirt, dust and flies of Roe Creek, a crusty dry riverbed halfway between the town and the base, 
and spent a pleasant night under the stars next to a giant red river gum. At first light, we packed up our swags and boxes of food and moved to a narrow strip of land between the sealed road and a newly erected, very unfriendly barbed wire fence encircling a pastoral property. Inside the base, the security state was gearing up with caravans, a generator, a bush dunny and a special task force from Darwin to patrol the grounds. Despite their presence, our encampment was full of colour and energy and looked more like an Asian bazaar than a haven of dissent. Organised into affinity groups, we did the usual chores that come with camping. On November 11th, with burly black activist Mum Shirl from Redfern and 30 Pijanjara women in the lead, a great array of women holding banners and flags marched and sang down the hot, silent desert road. Come on, Bob, you've got the job. Now what are you going to do? What do you gain with your power and fame if you blow us all in two? Bob Hawke, of course. At 11am we paused for the mandatory silence and someone read out a cautiously worded telex from 12 female MPs, a message cleared in advance by Prime Minister Hawke which sent a somewhat different message. The sun burned through the tent as we sat in large concentric circles in the red dust for our workshops. I gave a workshop on Pine Gap and an overview of secret agencies. Apart from rampaging mozzies, we faced other nocturnal pests. A low-flying helicopter regularly buzzed the camp while beaming a powerful searchlight into our tents and occasionally unleashing a blaring siren to drown out our street theatre and poetry reading. On day three, we breached the perimeter fence in honour of Karen Silkwood. Karen was an American technician at the Kerr-McGee nuclear power station killed in a mysterious car crash in November 1974. After claiming the plant was unsafe, Karen believed she had been deliberately contaminated with plutonium. She was on her way to meet a New York Times journalist when her car ran off a straight stretch of road in clear weather. A group dressed in black formed a human pyramid and acted out a climbing over fences routine using a barbed wire fence painted on calico as a prop. But the street theatre suddenly became the real thing when the women leapt over the main gate, dashed inside and squatted in a large circle for a Pine Gap version of the Boston Tea Party with Billy Tea and sandwiches while singing Tea for Two. Police got even more twitchy as tarpaulins, tents and banners sailed over the fence. As fast as the camping gear was confiscated and thrown out the gate, it was thrown back by the women on the outside. Using loud hailers, police ordered the women to leave, but about 60 headed off down the road towards the main buildings while small diversionary groups ran into the scrub and were chased by police cheered on by us. A police helicopter circled the main group and tried landing in front to block the women, but they kept walking until they were arrested. A few of us used bolt cutters to open a five-metre section of the outer perimeter and then ran like the wind through the opening. We had barely reached the guardhouse before a giant helicopter came so low it almost reached our bodies, forcing us to lie face down on the ground, covering our heads with our arms, not daring to move in case we were turned into mulch. The blades roared and whipped up swirls of red sand and splattered across us and the landscape, and I thought my day had come. 111 demonstrators were arrested that day and all but a handful gave the name Karen Silkwood to police before being driven to the Alice Springs lockup, where they were charged under the minor order trespass provisions of the Commonwealth Crimes Act. A crowd of us turned up at night to make sure they were OK and to find out they definitely were not.
Many complained of outright brutality. Apart from strip searching, some were forcibly fingerprinted involving handcuffs and metal machines like thumbscrews. Some police bent back their hands and held them by the throat, and a woman calling for a lawyer had papers shoved into her mouth. Dominican nun was choked during fingerprinting, while another detainee ended up in hospital with severe bruising and a suspected fractured spleen. I rang Gareth Evans in Melbourne and urged him to intervene, believing that a federal attorney general surely must have some clout, even in the Northern Territory. Beyond my jurisdiction, he said, but at midnight, at least he spoke to a senior officers about the nature of the charges, bail arrangements, access to lawyers and number of women to a cell, because many of them were crammed in, as you can imagine. At a later press conference, Chief Superintendent Gilroy said allegations against police were false and malicious as they had used only reasonable force. It gave us fresh insights into the treatment meted out to Aborigines. Some women arrested on the Monday were fined $300, while others were fined $250 for the same charge. Next day, a few of us snaked our right way around the back of Pine Gap and snipped off a substantial piece of its outer fence, pilfering some signs for good measure. I carefully wrapped them up and brought them home. At the end of November, I used a public meeting on uranium to launch the Pine Gap Women's Action Raffle and a few weeks later drew the lucky winners out of a bucket at the end of a Victorian state Labor conference causing frowns and raised eyebrows among the more conservative brethren. The prize? Naturally, bits of offence. They represented the only piece of Pine Gap available to Australians, and believe it or not, I still have a couple of bits here because I hung on to them, and it's still got the dust of Alice Springs on them and a little bit of the red cotton. When two more giant radiums rose up at Pine Gap in 1999, no one took much notice until George W. Bush snuck into the White House and barely drew breath before resurrecting the repulsive National Missile Defence System. Its linchpin, Pine Gap. A missile scheme that went to the very heart of global power politics. I will conclude with a statement made by the women during that historic peace camp of which I was very proud to be a member. We are here to emphasise the links between the survival of the earth the threat of imperialism to that survival, a recently elected government's complicity in that imperialism, their compromise on the mining and selling of uranium and women's lack of representation on all these matters. What women have to offer is precisely that which is spurned and maimed by all war machines, children, caring and love. As the saying goes, the common woman is as common as a loaf of bread and will rise. That was activist and former politician Joan Coxedge remembering the Women's Peace Camp outside Pine Gap in 1983. Cuba was a special place for Joan. She visited three times, spent many hours drawing the old buildings in Havana and other places, meeting with the leaders and meeting with the people, and was for many years the president of the Australia-Cuba Friendship Society. Here Joan was speaking after the death of President Castro on the 25th of November 2016, aged 90. Joan, can you briefly outline the Cuba that the people lived in prior to 1959 and the revolution? It was a country that was very divided, it was very corrupt, it was run by a, a brutal dictator, Batista. There was massive illiteracy, high unemployment. 
And five U.S. sugar companies controlled more than two million acres of the most arable land. It was a, a, a nation that welcomed the mafia, who ran a lot of the gambling and prostitution, and which overran uh, Havana in particular. There had been a number of insurrections over the years and they'd always been very brutally put down. And so the country, you could say, was ripe for revolution because the, the situation became so bad, the Cuban government, that's the Batista government, armed the people and posted lookouts throughout the city to try and look at what the hell was going on. We could go back, I suppose, even further if you wanted to, and that is that Fidel Castro... He was a student leader, and with 120 other comrades, he attacked the Moncada barracks in Santiago de Cuba in July 1953. Now, he hoped to trigger a mass insurrection, but only 30 survived. Fidel was lucky to be one of them who did. The rest were captured, tortured, and killed. But their action gave birth to the July the 26th movement, and what happened then, Fidel and his comrades fled into the mountains but they were rounded up in a huge manhunt. But public anger forced a trial because the Batista mob, of course, wanted to just shoot them out of hand and tried separately and in secret. Fidel acted as his own lawyer and his impassioned defence outlining his revolutionary program for reform was smuggled out of jail and was published as History Will Absolve Me, which became a very, very famous piece of writing. But he was sentenced to 15 years jail. But thanks to, a, a, again, a, a very vigorous public campaign, the young revolutionaries were released and they fled to Mexico where they reorganised, raised a lot of money and they trained with a veteran of the Spanish Wars. And that's when he met the young, charismatic, if you like, uh, Argentinian Dr Che Guevara. Guevara was a self-taught Marxist whose vision of social change was, was utterly uncompromising. And in 1956, Fidel, brother Raul, Che, and 79 others sailed to Cuba in Grandma, which was a leaky second-hand cabin cruiser. And if you go to Old Havana, it's now enshrined in a glass case for people to look at and wonder at. Well, they were blown off course by a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico, and they landed at Playa... Las Coloradas, the wrong beach. Batista's planes attacked them and they lost their boat, they lost their weapons, they lost their provisions, as well as 67 men. But can you imagine, 12 survivors only, and they headed for an isolated part of the Sierra Maestra where they rested and they made friends with the local workers and peasants and they grew beards, and that's where they earned their nickname Barbudos, the beards. Volunteers and aid poured in, and a year later the bearded ones were running the province. And news got out about uh, their successes and spread throughout the island via Radio Rebelde, it was a, obviously a rebel radio, and eventually reached the outside world after a New York Times reporter, Herbert Matthews, interviewed Fidel in his mountain sanctuary. So what happened then, Cubans buried their differences and they formed a united front of peasants, workers and students. Some fought in the mountains while others fought in the cities. And Batista retaliated with a no-wounded, no-prisoners response with the police killing thousands of revolutionaries while the US continued to supply Batista with tanks, planes and bombs. And in 1957, students stormed the presidential palace 
and another group took over the radio station and a 241-man battalion surrendered to Fidel Castro after a siege that lasted for 10 days and in the early hours of January the 1st, 1959, Batista and his cronies fled to the Dominican Republic and the revolution had become the government and hundreds of Batista's torturers and assassins were tried and shot but the majority scarpered off to Miami and the US sent three destroyers and two submarines to Havana to see what it could salvage and Fidel flew to Washington to smooth things over but was totally ignored and I think people still remember if they're old enough the, the image and that's when he first came to world prominence at the age of 30 as leader of the Cuban Revolution when he rolled into Havana on a captured tank under a blazing Caribbean sun with long beards, hair and their anarchic energy and courage that he and his comrades carried cemented their place, I think, part of a new chapter in development of Cuba. A huge task ahead of them, Joan. Oh, huge task because they faced massive illiteracy, high unemployment and, as I said, an outmoded rural sector where five US sugar companies, they controlled more than two million acres of the best land. And what he did immediately, he moved very, very swiftly. He immediately liberated large tracts to small farmers. He introduced free health care and education, halved rents and outlawed racial discrimination. The rich people, the thousands of professionals, they, they fled off to Miami where they linked up with Batista remnants to set up a virulent anti-communist fiefdom. And Washington, as you can imagine, got even more agitated when Castro closed the casinos. He took over the houses owned by the rich. He did away with private beaches and exclusive country clubs and he established unrestricted freedom of the press, which had previously only published news made in the US of A. And it was, if you like, the very beginning of Washington's secret deadly war against the tiny island nation. And in February 1960, two aircraft bombed Havana suburbs and President Eisenhower instructed the CIA to train Cuban emigres. And in March, a French steamship called La Cubra, full of arms and ammunition purchased from Belgium, blew up in Havana docks, killing 70 people. And the Catholic Church, initially benign, became increasingly shrill as reform programs kicked in. Half the priests shifted to the United States and the majority of Cubans simply stopped going to church. And in 1961, U.S. planes napalmed sugarcane fields and dropped anti-Castro leaflets over Havana. Now, Cuba didn't produce oil and therefore was forced to buy from a U.S. monopoly which virtually could charge what it liked. Soviet chief at that time was McCoy and he offered cheaper oil in exchange for sugar and Cuba signed a formal contract. But Yankee refineries still operating inside Cuba refused to refine the Soviet product. So Cuba nationalised the refineries, which makes a great deal of sense. And enraged Washington withdrew its petroleum technicians and stopped buying sugar. Cuba responded by nationalising all US property. So Castro booted out U.S. diplomats and the two countries severed diplomatic ties. The U.S. embargoed all goods going to the island and launched a campaign of sabotage and terror. They burned shops, bombed factories and schools and assassinated many Cubans. That was how the committees 
in defence of the revolution were born and I met many of them when I was there and they were the ones that kept a lookout for bad things happening in their area. But the final break came in April 1961 when a CIA-trained brigade of 1,300 mercenaries landed on Cuba's south coast at the Bay of Pigs, La Bahia de Cochinas, with five ships, two battleships and three freighters in an attempt to destroy the new government while fleets of American aeroplanes painted with the insignia of the Cuban Air Force bombed airports in Havana and other major cities. Cubans rose up and within 72 hours the liberators, so-called liberators, were routed and the thousand or so taken prisoners in Cuba, including a number of priests, were exchanged for medicines and baby food. Now, Kennedy's threat to obliterate Cuba spurred Castro to ask the Soviet Union for some rockets. Cuba was kicked out of the Organization of American States, and in October 1962, Kennedy put a total blockade on the island. The Cuban Missile Crisis developed into a global crisis, and there was a feeling we'd, we'd all be blown to kingdom come. Kennedy and Khrushchev shirt-fronted each other, but Khrushchev sensibly pulled back, and Kennedy promised never to invade Cuba. The missiles were withdrawn, and if you remember that time jam, we all breathed again. I think we all thought we really were going to be blown to kingdom come. But during that crucial powwow, Fidel Castro wasn't consulted by either major power, which meant that America's Guantanamo naval base stayed put. And years later, information seeped out about plans for a secret second invasion called Operation Mongoose for a full-scale onslaught on the island under General Edward Lansdale with the cooperation of at least two other Western nations, and I'm not too sure who they are. And it was just the beginning, because ten presidents in a row have behaved like thugs. They've organised bombings, sabotage, assassination attempts, commando raids, hijackings, and this strangling blockade. And the blockade, as has been mentioned, it's cost Cuba more than 89 billion dollars, 80% of which involved food and medicines. It's absolutely been disgraceful. And the Washington Post reported that the CIA had been running an anti-crop program against Cuba since 1962, a secret establishment based near the city of Baltimore and Fort Detrick in Maryland, where chemical and biological weapons were developed for this express purpose and it's been reported the US tried to knock off Fidel Castro God knows how many times, hundreds certainly, on occasion using crackpot methods like exploding the guards. They've denied that now because I think they find it extremely embarrassing. Yet despite all the provocations and the, the attempts on lives and things, the education system and the health care system in Cuba blossomed. Absolutely. Well, the first one of the first things Fidel did again was to send young people out into the countryside in a literacy program and these young people taught the peasants how to read and how to write. Just an amazing achievement. 35 universities were established and you could say after that great campaign, uh, the, illiteracy ca the literacy campaign, illiteracy was virtually eradicated. He increased the number of doctors from 6,000 to 40,000 in a healthcare system that eliminated infectious diseases and it drastically lowered the mortality rate, which remains the lowest in Latin America and many other parts of the world. When I was there, actually, 
uh, I went into the rural areas of Cuba where they had family doctors. Now, they were very, very short of drugs, as you can imagine, due to the blockade. So the main aim of these doctors was to keep the people well. In other words, they didn't wait for them to get sick. And they were responsible for about 200 families, and it seemed to work very, very well. I visited quite a few, and you could see how they were desperately short of drugs, but they were spotlessly clean, they had nurses working there, and the people just had free capacity to visit whenever they wanted, and the doctors used to go out and visit them when they were ill. It worked very well. And really, the family doctors were their first line of defence. They needed three years of graduate training and internship beyond the basic six years of study. You know, that's a lot of study. That's virtually nine years to qualify. And as I mentioned, they served a community roughly about 150 to 200 families. But in 1992, minus the Soviet Union after it um, fell apart, Washington really went for the jugular. You had George Bush Sr. and he enacted what I call the laughably named Cuban Democracy Act, which drastically tightened the blockade by imposing discriminatory tax penalties against nations and companies, including US subsidies in Europe and Australia, which traded with Cuba, and it prohibited all merchant ships from entering US ports for six months if they visited the island. The State Department actually circulated a list of business houses, banks, ships, and individuals with links to Cuba. And then in 1996, the so-called Democrat Clinton paid his dues to the, the ageing maddies running around Florida's Everglades. He got a lot of money from them, and he implemented the Helms-Burton legislation, which gave US courts the power to award damages against foreign companies using Cuban properties confiscated during the 1959 revolution. Now, it was based on the lie that no compensation was paid after Cuba nationalised property when the very opposite was true. Cuba acted in full accordance with international law and practice and signed agreements with Canada, Switzerland, the UK, Spain and France, but Washington refused to take part. After the Helms-Burton legislation won congressional approval, the US sent letters to Britain, Mexico and Canada, giving them 45 days to get out of Cuba in clear breach of international law. The Helms-Burton nightmare was vigorously rejected by both the European Union and the Organisation of American States, which is a reflection of the widespread global opposition to Washington's appalling treatment of Cuba, as clearly seen in the United Nations vote when the question of the US blockade was raised. And I think the last time it came up was a couple of weeks ago. For the first time, the US and Israel, who were the only two left who used to oppose the move to get rid of the um, blockade, they took a neutral stance. They obviously recognised that the two of them were the standout nightmares. Unfortunately, of course, the vote is non-binding. There they were, and they're still fighting like hell, and then due to ill health, going back a bit, Fidel Castro was forced to stand down as president in 2007, was replaced by his brother Raoul and it was quite obvious that Fidel was not well but he was still intellectually right on the money and he used his new title as commentator-in-chief to give us an incisive analysis of current events and continued right up until his death to discuss current events and all matters with Raoul. What was also important with Cuba, Joan, was that 
the assistance to others in struggle and what oh, the West feared most, setting the example for others to follow. Absolutely. Their internationalism was impeccable. They not only became a world leader in cancer research, they sent humanitarian missions to 68 countries, trained more than 18,000 doctors under a free scholarship scheme, hundreds of them on our doorstep in East Timor, and they treated free of charge some 26,000. But they did. They went, they helped people all around the world, all poor countries, particularly in their own region, of course, in Latin America. They formed very close relationships with various Latin American countries. You went there three times, Joan. You must have seen quite a lot of Cuba over that time. I did. I went uh, once as an individual, and then what I did, I went in two work brigades, but I stayed on, and I think that's the most valuable thing, because I was on my my own, and I travelled freely around the country, because at that stage I was preparing for running an exhibition, actually, of drawings, because I just fell in love with their beautiful Spanish historical architecture. It's just amazing, streetscapes and buildings, certainly in desperate need of paint and repair, but still magical. As far as an artist is concerned, you just couldn't help but fall in love with them. So I used to wander around old Havana, of course, and then many other parts of the country and just draw. And in the process, I did get to see a hell of a lot. I managed with difficulties sometimes to communicate with Cubans because my Spanish is pretty pathetic but I carried my little Berlitz how to speak Spanish with me at all times. We seemed to manage and Cubans were intrigued at what I was doing because here I would be sitting in the, on a footpath in the blazing sun drawing one of their buildings. They're very curious people and I'd end up with 10 deep around me wondering what the hell I was up to. But it was a great way to make friends with the people and talk to them, share what I was doing. Uh, because on my first visit, I'd been very fortunate, actually, to come across Eusebio Leal, who was the chief historian of the city of Old Havana. And he liked my drawings, and he said, well, come back, I'll help you to put on an exhibition of your drawings. Well, I went back a couple of times, and that's exactly what I did. I... I worked, you know, with the brigade, and then after that was all over, I used to just wander off and take off around the country and draw and meet them and talk to them and drink their mojitos and really fell in love with the country. And in uh, the third visit I went, I had a terrific exhibition in the patio of the Palace of the Captain's General in Old Havana. It was a magical time, and Eusebio Leal opened the exhibition in place there for a couple of weeks. And I was able to raise a lot of money for Cuba at that time too. I made a calendar of my drawings, I made prints of my drawings and sold them here and made quite a few thousand dollars which I was able to give most of it to uh, ASABO because they were desperately in need of money. This was during a difficult time when they were really hard up. After the Soviet Union went to the wall, they went through a extremely difficult time when food was desperately short. The shortages actually forced them to adopt different methods, uh, if you like, in the uh, rural sector. It forced the greening of Cuba. At that time, with the Soviet Union going to the wall, they lost more than 80% of foreign trade. The supply of petroleum fell by more than half. 
they just had this huge task of how to produce twice as much food with, it, with almost no chemicals in an agricultural system that had been based on large-scale monoculture. And they had been using a high, high uh, amount of artificial fertilisers and insecticides, so it had no choice but to fundamentally change the way food was grown. They were so innovative, they switched from its highly mechanised past to a more flexible way of operating. It initiated a number of reforms, and some of them changed probably even in the last uh, five years or so, but they redistributed all arable land and they allocated 40% to small farmers with a maximum size of 27 hectares to those who planted food crops and orchards on land previously used for coffee and tobacco and it stopped the spraying of pesticides. They did things that we should be doing here. They reduced food transport distances by focusing on urban agriculture. The government gave unused land to anyone who wanted to cultivate it and the Provincial Ministry of Agriculture set up a special department to support new gardeners. It also ran shops that supplied seeds and tools. And the kitchen gardens could be personal, they could be family or collective, with some attached to institutions such as schools and daycare centres and ranged in size from postage stamps to two or more hectares. And as a result, the urban agricultural movement spread rapidly across Havana's barrios, putting the nation's capital of 2.2 million on the path to sustainability. And today, I'm not sure of the percentage, but it's very high, Certainly more than 50% of Havana's vegetables are grown in the city, while in the urban gardens of other Cuban towns and cities, the figures have risen to between 80 to 100%. And farmers have learned new organic methods. They're encouraged to use legumes to put nitrogen back into the soil to establish worm farms and practice crop associations so that each crop controls the other's pests. There's also been a return to oxen. So not only do oxen save on fuel, but they also churn the soil instead of compacting it as tractors do. And I like this quote from the Roberto Sanchez. He's from the Foundation for Nature and Humanity, and he said, you have to follow the natural cycles, so you hire nature to work for you, not work against nature. To work against nature, you waste huge amounts of energy. Are you, like many people, concerned about the future, Joan? Yes, I can't help but be concerned about the future. I know that the mood in Cuba, especially during, you know, the funeral of Fidel and when his ashes really were transported right throughout the length and breadth of Cuba to Santiago, to Cuba, where the service was held and the, the whole area that the route was lined with people saying... I am Fidel, meaning that they will carry on what he was doing. They will carry on his legacy. I worry about Trump, of course, and I worry about, you know, just what he's likely to do, the sort of people he's put in with him. There's some very, very right-wing nasty people. He's made some very nasty statements from the moment he uh, he became the president-elect. There's a lot of uncertainty around but I don't think the Cubans will ever give up without one hell of a fight. They've got a lot to support. The older ones particularly remember what it was like under Batista. They'll fight like hell, and I think we've got to support them in every way we can outside Cuba. And I think a lot of, a lot of the world have been so, if you like, amazed at what Castro has done.
they do see what's happening in their own countries compared to what Cuba has been able to achieve. I just think there's so much support out there and so much concern about the societies we're all living in that we see we see the corruption, we see the inequalities growing, we see the destruction of our environment and we know that we need something a lot better than that if we're to survive. And I think Cuba provides us with a very fine example. So I say Viva Cuba. Finally for this hour long special celebrating the life of Joan Coxidge to the United States. The appointment by President Trump of John Bolton as the 26th U.S. National Security Advisor. Since gaining office in January 2017, President Trump in the U.S. has appointed and dismissed many undesirables. But there is a great deal of concern at the appointment of John Bolton as the U.S. National Security Advisor to begin on the 9th of April. To fill us in on the details of this man's activities over decades and more, I'm speaking with former politician and now political and social activist Joan Coxedge. Well, I want to talk about Trump's latest two senior appointments and they're both absolute shockers. First of all, John Bolton. He's been recently appointed as the new National Security Advisor. And then the other horror head is Mike Pompeo, and he is the new head of U.S. Department of State, recently ran the CIA. So bringing in these two neo-fascists in the current political climate is absolute madness. And it's very clear that Trump is assembling a war cabinet, and the current atmosphere in Washington has already been described as lethal, full-on with war fever. So you can imagine what the entry of these two creeps is going to mean. Republicans and Democrats alike are pushing the same war barrow. So it's like a choice between arsenic and cyanide. And ironically, I don't think this has received a great deal of coverage, but Nobel Peace Prize winner Barack Obama is leading the charge. Bolton, well, he's been described in many ways as the most hawkish man in America. I called him an unhinged thug, which I think is probably closer to the mark. But whenever there is a problem, war is always his answer. He totally rejects diplomacy. And it's a bit ironic when you look at his track record, because the closest he ever got to war, which wasn't very close at all, he previously served in the Maryland National Guard, and the U.S. Army Reserve towards the end of the Vietnam War. So, you know, he saw nothing at all of what war really means. He's got no understanding or wants to. And the story was that he used that time in, in the National Guard so he wouldn't have to be sent to Vietnam. Yeah. This is the supreme irony about people like that. Very happy to go to war as long as they're not in it themselves. It's disgraceful. And I've often said that if we had the olden times where the leaders in the community led the troops into war. I don't think we'd have as many, do you? But anyhow, so this individual, who's now the National Security Advisor, total disdain for democracy or any semblance of it. And he first came to prominence during the George W. White House, and I think he was even earlier back than that, but we don't, don't know so much about him, but I think he was working with Ronald Reagan as well. But anyhow, he really came to prominence during the... 
the George W. era, when he was hired as the Under Secretary of State in charge of arms control. <laughs> Can you imagine it? In charge of arms control. And he was managing US diplomacy regarding weapons of mass destruction. And we know uh, as what happened with that great lie. It led to the catastrophe of Iraq. But this is where he developed a serious reputation as a bully, a full-on bully, a serial abuser, a very, very nasty man indeed. So I could describe him as not only a total asshole, but he's also incredibly bright, which makes him even more dangerous. And, of course, he's obsessed with plans to destroy the Islamic Republic, and he's repeatedly called for the obliteration of Iran during his regular appearances on Fox News. And Fox News itself, of course, is a a lovely conduit for the extreme right-wing views of people who go on it. And he was also the major player in persuading Trump to rip up the Iran nuclear deal. And he also earned a reputation for twisting intelligence and was actually rejected by the Republican-controlled Congress for the role of U.S. ambassador to the U.N. And it was that bad. You've only got to look at the current incumbent. She's so far to the right, you know, she just about fell over. Even war hawk Dick Cheney wanted him out. Now, (laughs) that tells you something as well. Apparently Cheney didn't like his management style. And Bolton once threatened an international official who crossed him, and he said, we know where your kids live. A charmer, isn't he? His rhetoric is so brutal and his behaviour so thuggish that he's frequently accused of behaving like a madman. So it really is time to sound the alarm to panic, I think, because the the bullies have come together. What about his role or his opinion on Cuba? Absolutely bad. He would uh, set all the most military interventions against Cuba. I I haven't read so much recently about what he's saying about Cuba. I think he's more concentrating on the Middle East at the moment, but Cubans must be very well aware of the dangers that they face with a man like that in the position he's got, because he's only a couple of feet away from from the White House. So you've got Trump, who has no opinions of his own. He's all over the bloody place. He doesn't know what he's saying from one day to the next. So here's this man who's got very strong views, sitting close by, and you can imagine the influence that he's going to have on Trump. The only hope we have, Trump has a great track record of sacking everybody within about a couple of months. We can only hope that this um, awful John Bolton gets on his nerves so much that he gets fed up with him and gets rid of him. But at the moment, he's there, he's in situ, and he's very, very dangerous indeed. And there are a lot of people calling him a a war criminal or less because of his role in Iraq. Absolutely. And, I mean, that was based on a deliberate lie. We know that. But then, you know, the war criminals, uh, Blair and our very own Howard, followed in and it's just a calamitous situation. It's been described now as just like an occupied nightmare, Iraq. Can't see it ever recovering. And Medea Benjamin, she's an American who's very highly regarded because the official figure varies a lot. At the maximum, it's often quoted, a million people died. And she said that's an understatement. It was in reality about two million plus that died. And that doesn't account for the total obliteration of its uh, culture and its whole existence, if you like. You destroy a country's culture, you destroy it completely. And that's what Bolton took part in with his dreadful pushing of the, you know, weapons of mass destruction. But then that whole group of neocons planned a long time ago to 
move in on the Middle East and this is another manifestation of that. And it is a very, very worrying time indeed. And then, as I said, with the number two nightmare is Mike Pompeo and he's even more hawkish than Trump, so they'd make a damn good pair here in Bolton. He's also a West Point graduate and former army officer and a former Tea Party rep. And we know the Tea Party, again, were of the extreme right of the Republican Party. So they've sort of just fallen off the the planet, really. And, of course, he's a very, very strong supporter of Israel. And he describes, uh, this is um, Pompeo, he describes Netanyahu as a true friend of the American people. This is a man who's a violent crook. And we know what's happened to the Palestinians in the last few days, a terrible massacre, and because they were just peacefully protesting. So it's a very worrying time indeed. It's almost grotesque, I think, the situation around the White House. It's a grotesque president surrounding himself with grotesque people. But what it does is put the world at huge risk. And you've been following these sort of issues for many, many years, Joan, and to say that this is the the worst that you've seen... It really has to be. I, mean, I can remember Cold War One when we all thought we'd be blown to kingdom come, you know, and that was over the Cuban Missile Crisis, and things were pretty worrying at that time. But I think this this has got a coldness, a, a horror about it that was lacking then. That was like an acute situation seemed to resolve itself when uh, the Russians pulled back. Uh, I don't know what the Americans did at that in that situation. They seemed to be full on to stay in place and I don't think we would have got a peaceful outcome had the Russians not pulled back but at this stage you've got the frame up now taking place of of the Russians being blamed for the um, poisoning of the and that's a contentious issue but I, I certainly don't believe it happened I think it's a put up job because no proof has been given at all and if they were really fair dinkum then they would be presenting evidence and they have not Theresa May the Prime Minister of Britain was deeply unpopular and of course she's riding now on the wave as if she's somehow you know, had a great victory for the West over Russia and there's no doubt that they're building up this enormous intense hatred of Russia and everything to do with Russia and Iran's caught up with that we know what it's got to do with it's got to do with the value of, of the US dollar it's got to do with its declining power It's got to do with the total stuff-up of the West, which has totally failed to provide for ordinary people. And there's discontent right throughout the Western world with the way things are going. And you've got to have somebody to hate. And Russia's handy. It's out there. Well, you have to have someone to hate because your your country runs on weapons and manufacturing weapons. That's right, huge. If you're not using them yourself, you're selling them to someone else. Always got to have wars because I know they had a a huge arms deal to Saudi Arabia recently. That was the United States and another one to Israel because that's one of the nightmares too. Everybody's so heavily armed with the latest, latest, most terrifying weaponry. And you'd only need a slip-up. You'd only need somebody who would uh, be a Dr. Strangelove and, you know, trigger off something before it could be stopped, you know, and then you have A following B and away we go. We just hope it doesn't happen. But it is very dangerous. And you'd like to think Australia as a small power, which is all we are, could somehow act in a more positive way for peace. But no, we just jump on board everything that America wants. It doesn't matter how, as I said, grotesque their leadership is and how disgraceful their policies are. We're there. And we, God only knows what deals 
that uh, are done behind closed doors. We do know that we're getting more and more American troops here, stationed here. And, of course, when I'm talking about the dangerous situation, what would be in the middle of it all? Pine Gap, the most important American base outside the United States. And then you come to all sorts of other questions that you might like to look at later on, and that is how, why Whitlam got kicked out and who was behind that. And it opens up many, many doors. You've only got to look at the, the hypocrisy of blaming Russia for interfering in America's political system and you think, or their elections, and you think of the countries where the countries where the US, and you can include Australia in this, have interfered in the elections of other countries. Oh, God, yes. Well, look at Latin America. Well, actually, there's hardly anywhere in the world where they haven't interfered. Well, you've only got to look at Whitlam. You've only got to look at Whitlam, and that's detailed and great. And they're the friends. So-called friends, yes. But don't step out of line, friend, because if you do, we'll jump on you. Don't have a little tiny bit of independence, friend, because we don't care for that. You just have to do everything we want you to do and don't budge. And, I mean, a lot of people have forgotten their role in Greece way back when the colonels came and the Americans were right behind it. Hardly a country in the world where they haven't interfered if they don't care for the sort of uh, people that have got elected or who come through the ranks. And Latin America is now going through a very traumatic time. Have a look at Venezuela. Honduras where they and supported Honduras, the coup. yes, indeed. I mean, and then you go to Iran where the CIA orchestrated a coup when a leader came in there in, was it 1956? And they didn't care for the leader, independent. Again, mayhem ensued as a result of that interference. So they're experts at it, but they're not experts at the terrible outcomes that take place when they do interfere. Yeah. 
Creating space for women and gender diverse people to thrive, the Queen Victoria Women's Centre is now taking applications for their inaugural Feminist Historian in Residence. Over 12 months, revisit their historical records to uncover fresh stories and perspectives. The centre encourages proposals that challenge their history from an intersectional viewpoint and grapple with the complexities of colonisation. To apply, head to qvwc.org.au, closing Friday, February 16th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter. Women in Community Radio, come along to the NEMBC Multicultural Women's Forum, A Seat at the Table, where we can meet online and network, share experiences and learn new skills. This forum is being held in Adelaide in a hybrid format, so you can join in online as well. If you're from a multicultural background and involved in radio or interested in radio broadcasting, then this forum is for you. Let us meet on Saturday, 10th of February, 2024, for a day of interesting talks, training sessions and fun activities. Please register at admin at nembc.org.au. A link will be sent to you closer to the date. If you need more information, please send an email or visit our Facebook page, Women Broadcasters. A 3CR supporter. The much-anticipated ruling by the International Criminal Court on the application by South Africa over charges of genocide by Israel over its contention that Israel is committing genocidal acts in Gaza. To explain the ruling, the reactions and the possible consequences, I spoke with recently retired Adelaide QC Paul Haywood-Smith. First, the ruling by the court. It's been described as an emergency interim ruling. What do you make of it? Well, fairly briefly, it was a major decision by the International Criminal Court of Justice. South Africa essentially got what they were seeking, which was um, preliminary orders to last until the case is finally heard, provisional measures. They substantially got everything they asked for. Israel had argued that they didn't comply or that the case didn't comply because there was no between it and South Africa. The court was against Israel on that. Israel sought to have the case dismissed totally. That is, removed from the list. That was rejected by the court, so the matter now proceeds uh, in the ordinary course for a full period of evidence and for a final determination. But Israel also sought provisional measures sought by South Africa to be rejected and the court was against Israel on that. Now, I don't know whether you want me to go into yet what those provisional measures are. I I thought I might raise a couple of other matters first. Firstly, I believe that there has been, as usual, misleading press coverage about the decision. Our usual policy I'm reporting gives a totally false impression when you read the judgment. The overwhelming impression is that it's a significant victory for South Africa. South Africa yet effectively none of us see what they saw. Naysayers advanced that failure of the court to use the word ceasefire in one of the provisional measures is a um, 
be defeatist and everything that is just simply not correct. But certainly South Africa in its draft, its first draft provisional measures used the word ceasefire. The court points out that uh, the way that it expresses its orders is its business, it, it is its verbiage and that is the wording. And the court doesn't even address the issue of the word ceasefire. And when we come to the provisional measures, the first provisional measure is, is made is effectively tantamount to the same thing. So I say misleading coverage. Another thing that's of interest to the listeners, I think, is that there were 17 judges on the court, 15 judges that are permanent judges, and then in a case like this, where there are two states, each state is entitled to appoint a judge. So there was an additional Israeli and South African judge. So there were 17 judges. There were six provisional measures ordered by the court. All six had 15 votes in its favour. One of the judges, a Ugandan judge, was against all six, and the Israeli judge was against four out of six. So you'll see that it's overwhelming. And, and the 15 included the sole US judge, which I think is, people will think is significant. But I think you listeners have to understand that this is what's what we call, what lawyers might call an interlocutory decision. That is a preliminary decision before the court proceeds to hear the full case. Because there's only two days, there's no way the court was going to be able to hear all the evidence and have it tested in that two days. So, so what the court did it was to hear the basic claims and found that the South African case raised issues within the Genocide Convention. Israel argued that, that uh, there had to be a specific intent to destroy Palestinian people and that that had not been proved. The court found that the claim was at the least plausible, which was sufficient for to make provisional measures. Uh, the court accepted certain unarguable facts, and in particular, as to intent, the court noted a number of statements by Israeli officials, including their president and um, minister and a few other high officials, to the effect that, uh, that the intent was really to get rid of the Palestinians. And so the court found that it was all plausible, so they found that they had jurisdiction to proceed, and they did proceed. And the object of these provisional measures is to preserve the respective rights of the parties pending it and the final decision. Now, the final decision it might take a year or two, but I mean, this court is pretty traditionally slow. I don't know why, but that might be able to move a bit quicker than this one, I'm not sure. But um, the court found that there was a need to make these provisional measures to preserve the position in the final hearing. The reactions, Paul, there have been reactions from different groups. First of all, the Palestinians, how have they reacted to this? Oh, I think they've reacted positively. I mean, there hasn't been a lot of reportage on that, but uh, I can't see why they wouldn't act positively because the uh, provisional measures uh, require Israel to 
uh, effectively take all necessary measures not to run the risk of committing genocide. Their army is not to commit any of the relevant acts associated with genocide, such as killing people. And they have to, um, in particular, ensure the provision of basic services and humanitarian assistance. So that would be a matter critical to the Palestinians. I think that they are very happy with it. And Israel and its allies? Israel is, as I said, bad for Israel because this court has has world credibility. It it is the world court. And 15, effectively, uh, out of 17 judges and 16 out of 17 in respect of two of the measures, agreed. So there is a, a close to unanimous court ruling against Israel and I think Netanyahu might have come out and said that he's not he's not interested in what this court says. I think in fact I think they've used extraordinarily they have used the phrase or they've, they've suggested that uh, it, it shows the anti Semitic bias of the court. Now that is just ridiculous. No one's going to accept that. Uh, and as for the United States, will you recall when South Africa lodged the application, the US came out and asserted that the case was, quote, meritless, end quote. Now, having regard to what the what the court has found and, and, and its near uni- unanimity, the US looks stupid uh, and the impact on global opinion uh, must hugely damage US credibility. As far as the rest of the world is concerned, all countries are bound by the decision. They're all put on notice that they must protect themselves from complicity. So, that, for example, Australia must look to what it does. It must not enter into contracts to provide military hardware to Israel because that might well result in Australia being complicit. And it is, it is likely, I, I think that it's likely that the decision will go to the Security Council. One of them in South Africa will probably refer to the Security Council for implementation. And if the United States uses its veto on the Security Council, that is damaging its credibility even further. But if it did use its veto, veto the matter could go to the General Assembly, the whole, all of the community of nations, and that uh, General Assembly could pass a resolution implementing the decision which would call upon all members to do certain things. And they could well be cessation of recognition of Israel, cessation of um, diplomatic relations and commercial relations. So this is a very, a very significant decision and it is, has the potential to have a, a great impact on this dispute and on the world and, and to reinforce international law. So I think we can be really pleased with it. Israel has a, a month to respond to this, the compliance with the Geneva Convention. Is that normal? I think it is. But, I mean, there's not a lot of precedence of this court, certainly none involving major Western states. But what they have to do is, what Israel has to do within a month of the 26th of January, which is when the decision is handed down, 
is to submit a report on all measures that it has taken to give effect to the orders. Uh, it, it doesn't respond to what the court says. The court's, what the court has said is final. There's no appeal. So they are stuck with it. They don't comply. The court hasn't got the power to send police in or, or, or armies in. But if it doesn't comply, that's going to drive, that's going to make Israel more and more a pariah state uh, with the vast community of nations. So all it has to report back on in that month is all the measures that it has taken to give effect to the other orders. Now, the other orders include, uh, as I said, that they, Israel is not to engage in any activity that might conceivably result in the commission of genocidal acts. That they include, for example, killing Palestinians, causing serious bodily or mental harm to Palestinians in Gaza, deliberately inflicting on the Palestinians in Gaza or, or a group or group of them conditions of life calculated to bring about physical destruction in whole or in part, and in imposing measures intended to prevent births within the Palestinian community in Gaza. So it can't do any of those things, and its military is not to commit any relevant acts that might result in any of those things occurring. That's the second of the, um, of the orders. Third was that um, Israel is to prevent or punish directly any Israeli citizen who publicly incites Israel to commit genocide. And as I said, the fourth one is that it has to provide basic services and humanitarian assistance. And the, the fifth one was that it uh, is to prevent the destruction and ensure the preservation of evidence related to the allegations of acts constituting genocide. And the sixth one is that Israel is to report on the measures that it's taken to give effect to all of those. Now, each one of those provisional measures was sought by South Africa. That's not in the precise terms that the court used, but effectively. And so you can readily see how South Africa has effectively got what it sought and has done the world, in my view, has done the world and humanity a great service. All those stipulations you mentioned about not causing bodily harm, mental harm, inflicting yep. inflicting pain on groups, etc., doesn't that mean that they have to get out of Gaza? Yeah, effectively. That's what I, I believe, effectively. I mean, but they can't say that. It, it, well, they haven't said that, so they haven't. So they've expressed, you know, that it may well be when you've got fifteen judges. Some of them might have wanted to use more precise wording, verbiage, and others might not have. And so this might be an agreement. They, they phrase it this way to get to the agreement of fifteen. But for example, it effectively, in my view, means that Israel's got to get out of there because whilst they're there, they are killing. Palestinians, and they are not people directly responsible for what happened on the 7th of October. They are Palestinians. They might be members of the Palestinian government, which they like to call Hamas. But uh, in my view, they're highly unlikely to be able to do that without killing, as they have been doing, ordinary civilians, children, women, in large numbers. It's continuing. 
you know, 100 or so daily, but they cannot continue to do that because that is plausibly coming within the genocide convention of effectively destroying a group of people, a particular group of people. And so I think that they need to get out of there. And it looks like at the moment they're trying to get an agreement, which they say is for two months, effectively a ceasefire for two months when all of the hostages will be released. I rather suspect that if that happens, you won't have Israel going back into Gaza. And, and, and I mean, Israel is more than capable of reinforcing its towns and villages near Gaza uh, as for, for um, stopping missiles being fired into Israel. Well, that's another matter, I suppose, but that they have the capacity to shoot them out of the air. That's not a huge problem for Israel. But I rather suspect that if Israel did the right thing, stopped supporting settlers in the West Bank and stealing Palestinian land, started to behave properly, that you would find that those missiles would cease. Uh, and I think that uh, the Palestinian people aren't silly and they will, uh, will have um, lots of encouragement from other countries, Egypt, Jordan, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, etc., to play the game, provided the game is that there is a Palestinian state and the Palestinian state can only be, in my view, on the current legal borders, which are the 67 borders uh, encompassing the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza, and provided that is is, is honoured, then I think that you, the circumstances will be created whereby over a period of time, and it might take, might take a long time, maybe 10, 20 years, you will start to get Israelis and Palestinians beginning to trust each other and learning to live with each other peacefully. This decision it has the potential, in my view, to start a process which is really positive for the people of the area and for the world. Just to go back to the court ruling, you mentioned last week when we spoke that on the 4th or 6th of February that a number of the judges were retiring. How will that impact on the decision that they have to make or the ruling they make on the 16th of February? Yeah, look, I'm not totally familiar with all of the rules of the court, but I would imagine that those judges who are retiring are replaced by other judges in the ordinary course, and I imagine that the that the commencement of that of that of the hearing taking of evidence in that matter might not occur for six months or nine months or whatever, uh, and it will just be the judges, the 15 that are there at the time, who will proceed to hear the matter, and some of them will have been on this court and some of them won't. I don't think that's a problem. All right. Well, what about the impact on the people of Israel? We've heard that in recent months that people are leaving. What impact do you think this decision is going to have on them? Well, I haven't heard any, um, any 
figures or particulars about it. I mean, there are bound to be many Israelis who are opposed to what their government has done. You know, the, the bombings, the sort of bombings that were done, which indiscriminately just slaughtered children. And they must be terribly embarrassed and just not prepared to to stay in Israel and give the appearance of condoning it. Now, as I understand it, the majority of Israelis do support the war and what's gone on. But although there seems to be a lot of dissatisfaction at the moment with the Netanyahu government, but uh, the um, the alternative the alternatives seem to me to be just as uh, supportive of the war as Netanyahu. They might go about in a different way, but um, I think that there is unhappiness in Israel with the fact that the religious right was able to use its voting power to obtain a an entry into government, into Netanyahu's government, so that you know, effectively Likud is in a minority government from the religious right. And I think a lot of people are embarrassed by some of the statements the religious right makes. I mean, as I've indicated, the, the reference to the Old Testament uh, and to the... Um, the need for, or God telling Moses to go to Canaan and to smite and destroy the Ammonites, those sorts of motions, I think, are an embarrassment for many Israelis. And for, and for them to say, you know, for these religious right people to say, well, look, you know, there's no such thing as an occupation, there's no, there's no occupied territories, it's impossible for Jews to occupy land which God has given to them. That's one of the major arguments. And then to say, oh, oh no, yes, we can't negotiate and uh, and agree to Palestinians having this piece of land because we can't give away land that God gave to us. And of course, what they say is that God gave all of the land from the Great River to the Euphrates. Now, the Great River is the Nile, so all of the land between the Nile and the Euphrates encompasses a large slab of Egypt, all of Jordan, all of Syria, half of Iraq, probably a bit of Lebanon, and, and, and as well as uh, the Holy Land, as well as um, what is currently uh, Israel and Palestine. So, you know, you, you've got the, when, you, when you're trying to deal with these people, it's almost impossible to get any sense. And I think a lot of this Israeli secular Jews and non-secular Jews are embarrassed who don't put the same value upon precisely what the what Joshua says you know, in, in writings from three thousand years ago. It seems to me the reaction by the United States and some of their allies is well, you make a decision like that and we're going to punish the Palestinians, we're going to withdraw money, not forever, but withdraw money from UNRWA. And that, to me, goes totally against the ruling because they're supposed to provide basic services and that's in the ruling. That's right. Well, so this has come out in the last couple of days. It's an allegation, that's all it is, an allegation that 12 employees of UNRWA uh, were in some way involved in the 7th of October 
military operation by the Palestinians uh, in, in Israel. Now, first of all, it's an allegation. It hasn't been proved. We don't know what uh, involvement this is to have had. It's, unfortunately, it's the sort of thing we're used to getting, we've got used to with Israel. They make these allegations. I think it's, it does Australia no credit that we have come out and said we're suspending the aid to UNRWA. That, I believe, is not complying with the court's ruling because Australia, as a signatory of the Genocide Convention and as a member of the UN, is bound to give effect to this ruling. And I believe that by Australia just coming out and just accepting these allegations, is not doing that. And it's not just Australia. I gather it's the UK, Canada and uh, Germany, the usual suspects. But, um, yeah, I agree with you. I think that that, that is um, an embarrassment to our country. OK, Paul, well, thanks once again and we will talk again. And Paul is Paul Haywood Smith, recently retired QC in Adelaide. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza, who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars, and a 16 year siege, are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. Tickets are now on sale for the 2024 Marxism Conference, happening over the Easter weekend. The Marxism Conference is one of the biggest gatherings of revolutionaries, radicals and activists from around Australia and across the world. Three days of discussions, interviews and debates on key questions and themes for socialists, covering radical working class history, Marxist fundamentals, left debates and global struggles happening today. With our world entering a new era of accelerated climate crisis, economic chaos and rising imperialist tensions, it's now more important than ever for socialists and anti-capitalists to get together to discuss and debate ideas for a world in crisis. Lock in your spot to Australia's biggest socialist conference and grab your tickets now at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. No more whispering in our arms. Gonna rise up to break these chains and stop these killing games. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne invites you to join us on Saturday the 17th of February at midday at the State Library, Swanson Street, Melbourne to mark the 20th anniversary of the death in custody of Redfern teenager TJ Hickey. Honour the memory of TJ and the many deaths in custody families that now number more than 555 since the 1991 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. 
No one to date has been held responsible for these deaths. We demand end the practice of police investigating police and immediate implementation of all 339 recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. Come along Saturday 17th of February, midday, at the State Library. Eastern Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. On the program last week, we heard about the early actions that David Burgess was involved with, beginning at high school with cuts to public education, through protecting the forest, supporting the people of the Congo and Bougainville against exploitation. Today we move to late 2002, early 2003, the prospects of an invasion of Iraq by the US and their lackeys in the new year. The opposition was huge, millions on the streets worldwide, occupation of government buildings, burning of US flags. But two men had another idea and that was David and his friend Will Sanders. David, who had the idea of painting a slogan on the Sydney Opera House sale, and what was the impetus for that? That was quite a moment, and and so was the build-up to the Iraq War. I'd been working back in the forest conservation movement in Sydney, sort of living out behind Newcastle in the Wadigan Mountains, and I was forest campaigner for the Wilderness Society at the time for New South Wales. All through that winter and and spring and leading into the summer of 2002-2003, the machines of war had been building up and the, the politics in the Middle East were all slowly and inevitably ignoring the seeming lack of evidence of any weapons of mass destruction and what was it, the the coalition of the willing um, was being formed to create an invasion force under under George Bush, Tony Blair, John Howard. And I guess at the beginning, it was probably, you know, when we all came back from Christmas break and into the working year of 2003 that very apparent by then that war was imminent. They were going to ignore whatever the UN and other countries and the the peace movement and the the weapons inspectors told them and they were going to go into Iraq. I'd known Dr Will Saunders for a number of months. Because he was an astronomer, I'd known him quite well through work out at Coonabarabran and, and in the the sort of Brigalow Belt forests out in western, northwestern New South Wales, or western New South Wales, really, where the forest debate had sort of moved on to and an attempt was being made to reserve some, what was left of forests out there. So we're really talking places like the Piliga, sadly now is the, the target of the coal seam gas industry and places like that. So Will was working out there and had been, sort of coming along to some of our meetings about those places and sort of slowly got to know him over the year. And he he was expressing an anger, you know, very deep anger against the Iraq war, you know, attending all the marches and wanting to do something about it as as activists do. And then, yeah, it must have been after one of these these forest meetings in, in early 2003, he said he had a, a tin of paint wanted to paint an anti-war message and would I help him? Um, And we'd done a fair few direct actions 
you know, over the previous year by then. So he trusted me and I trusted him to, to be a little bit naughty. Talking about painting a message somewhere in Newtown, and I, I sort of looked at him and said, well, everyone paints a message in Newtown. In Sydney there, which, you know, almost the heart of the lefty belt, or certainly was then, he said, well, where would be another good place to paint it? And I, I said, well, top of the sales of the Sydney Opera House, if you want to get your message across, as a joke. Actually see Will's scientific brain sort of adjusting from, from the scale of what he was proposing to what I just said. I was almost horrified he was started talking about it as a serious proposal. I was just trying to get him out of, you know, graffiti alley somewhere and where only green fading people would see it anyway to something a bit more effective. I, I didn't expect that to lead to what happened, but it did. And that was a very slow process. I mean, not that slow because it, it must only have been um, a month given the invasion happened in mid-February, but he said, oh, I'd get deported if I did that. And I said, yeah, well, you'd have to think about that. <laughs> and, he, and then he goes off and about a week later, the phone rings and he says he'd, he'd thought about it. And by then we were sort of talking about little else whenever we had the chance. And I, I realised it wasn't going to go away. He was determined to do something. But it was only after he rang and said he he was prepared to suffer the consequences that that went next level. So slow build up in the planning stages and then we did it. How did you choose the exact spot where you did it? Well, it was the top. That's where it was going to look the best and make the most striking image. We nearly chose a sort of safer and easier to get to level further down, but I'm really glad we didn't. I'm really glad we made that extra effort to scale up the biggest of sale and just sort of put it in that iconic spot that always shines and is really pointy and sort of makes to those pleasing aesthetics that the, the opera house gives out. How did you get up there? Hand over hand. There's a lot of people saying we'd gone up inside the building and we'd had inside help and we were sort of looking at them and just saying, come on, let's get on with the real stuff. We climbed it. And they knew that anyway, but... Um, yeah, there was a bit of a hoo-ha as to how we'd done it. But yeah, no, it was just hand over hand. Certainly, I, I lived outside of Sydney, so I, I didn't really get the chance to have a, a good look at it until we I hit town on a Thursday night and Will wanted to go ahead with the action on the Friday and went to the building straight away and I just realised I needed certainly some better shoes and just to have a better look at the building over that weekend. But yeah, I, I looked at it and just realised we worked out a place where the climb was possible, where you were probably going to run into a bit of difficulty in terms of the grade and, and with sort of certain angles of the drop-off and where it got steepest. So it was fingers into the tiles and, and toes into the tiles down the bottom. So you had to pick where you stopped and shifted sideways, things like that, and what, you know, what having a backpack full of paint and quite heavy gear on your back would be like. So I spent the weekend thinking about things like that and we were going to do it on the Monday, but it rained, so Tuesday it was. Did you have any practice runs anywhere? We practised painting No War upside down. had to do with rollers, standing at the top and painting. So it was riding backwards and upside down. But we only did that with textures, really, just to know what we would... I mean, imagine spelling... No war wrong. You'd never get over it. 
and imagine falling too. So we thought about safety and we thought about getting the spelling right. And we tested the paint on some tiles. It was it was oil-based paving paint that we all had. Um, we had tested acrylic, but water-based paint that they could have more easily hosed off. But it just wasn't quite doing, you know, it was bubbling a bit and breaking away from itself on these tiles that we tried it on. Yeah, we went with the oil-based paint, which became, apart from the war in Iraq, the nature of the paint we used became the issue for the authorities. Did you have a support team on the ground? A little one. We we had a couple of mates, one who was there to give our phone number to the police so we could instantly communicate with them. I mean, the feeling at the time, or even ever since 9-11, was quite a paranoid security time that era so and and leading into the iraq war they were going on about inevitable acts of terrorism so we wanted to have communication with the the cops straight away so a mate gave them my number and then we had another friend along he was a lawyer and he he just acted as a legal observer how long was it before you were spotted about 20 seconds <laughs> will went first i will scurried off up the tiles first and I, I, I think I gave him maybe a 20 or 30 second start so as he took off you know that's when security probably spotted him because by the time I'd taken off there was a voice on the ground saying come back now mate and, and it was right when I'd hit that the most difficult part of the climb which was only about five ten ten meters up and then you, you had to flatten yourself into the tiles and shift sideways along them to to reach a, a little bump in the guttering there that, that gave you a better foothold. And so right at the most difficult moment, the security guard started shouting at me to come down. And I can remember saying through gritted teeth, I just might, mate, meaning I might come down on top of him. But then, yeah, I got to the the safer part of the, the tiles and ran on up to the actual spine of the building uh, and left the unheeded pleas of, of security behind. I'd also figured that there would be access on the the spine to well, from inside the sail onto the outside along the spine of the building. So I'd taken along... Um, a few lengths of padlock and chain to secure the hatchways so we could paint um, until we let them out, basically. Did you use up all your paint? Oh, yeah. It's funny because we only took one can up, but we actually had two cans. I was worried about, you know, having a, a can of paint in a backpack heading up the, the building, and I didn't like the idea of, of the cumbersome nature of it, so I poured my paint into a couple of plastic sort of more flexible juice bottles. Will took his can up. You know, we, we had eight litres, not four, as they said. Yeah, we I just poured it into the, the tray. Will was on the painting end of things. I was on the paint pouring and police negotiating things. So as a result of pouring paint for someone on the end of a five-metre extended roller pole, I was getting splattered you know, this, this wobbling pole and just steering wheel to the right place and also sort of making sure that we weren't bothered and, and talking with the police and, and stuff like that. Did you have a chance to have a look at the view? I mean, oh, you were aware of it, but, you know, by then the adrenaline was going um, and just the need to 
to get the, the message on. But what I did notice in a sort of sensory way beforehand was just the silence up there, if you like it. I mean, the city gives off a roar, but even at just that 60-odd metres height above it and next to the harbour, it was distinctly quieter. Also, this vague sense that the whole sort of everyone sort of was winding down to stop and watch us. You literally saw groups of and vehicles and boats stop moving. And I noticed the bridge climb, the people climbing up the harbour bridge had stopped and that was, was going, oh, wow, everyone's watching this, it's on now. And the ferry started honking us as well, which was cool. But, yeah, the view was... Uh, actually, it was only at the end when the police had stopped us painting and, and we were, you know, it wasn't like they grabbed us and pinned us down and there was a big big rumble or anything. It was just, oh, hi, how are you going? You, you better stop, boys, you're under arrest. But, you know, once we'd put everything back into bags and there was obviously we were going to have to go down a series of ladders and landings and walkways to get down so we we all had to help each other a bit to climb down inside the sail at the end when we'd all packed up i said to the police look none of us are ever going to be back up here again how about we just have a little look before we all go down and we're all tired and then they nodded and we we just uh had a little minute all none of us said a word just all looking out over over the harbour what was awaiting you at the bottom well, we actually got arrested about maybe five, just down a ladder from the top. There was a landing and we got to the landing and then there was a the senior police inspector standing there. <laughs> so we got arrested inside the sail on a series of ladders. And it was just, you know, very claustrophobic, you know, at the top where it's all narrowed out. And then we, we climbed down some more ladders and... You know, it was just an amazing experience being in that sail. And that, that in one place, we started going up again to get to a point where we went down again. We then sort of realised we were fair way down and then we walked over a, a much bigger walkway and actually realised that an orchestra was warming up just below us. So we were clearly on the catwalk above the, the concert hall. I think by that time we were put in a lift. We came out in the lobby briefly and a whole bunch of people staring at us and taking photos and then back in another lift down into the stage door area, the basement. And by then the orchestra had stopped rehearsing and came out to form two lines and clapped us into the paddy wagon, which the Opera House denied happened for a very long time. Did you get a chance to have a look at your handiwork from the ground up? Yeah, it was quite funny though because... I don't know if people were familiar with or remember the old sort of style paddy wagons. They were encased sort of in this black faux leather plastic in a covering. So it was a bit of a cage with a with a black covering over the top of it. And there was a bit of a gap in some of that covering. So as we drove off, I was able to peek through this little hole. And that was when I realised how pretty bloody good it looked I guess and I sort of said oh wow that does look good and sort of Will was was happy about that had a bit of a look at the branding the, the corporate branding on the other skyscrapers of Sydney and worked out sort of the 
the dimensions it had to be. And I, I think we learned in court that the, the message was 25 metres long and five metres high or something. Off to the police cells? Was, was that your next...? Off to the, yeah, it was off to the rocks. Yeah, more intense sort of level of questioning you got there on to that, obviously, rather than all the arrests that had happened deep in forests. I've been arrested in Nigeria, actually, so that, that arrest was way more unpleasant. Everyone was against that war, and the cops were pretty happy with us for maintaining that communication with them from the start of the action onwards. So, you know, we'd shown a level of care for everyone, and we didn't really have anything to hide. But there was this theory going around that we'd had inside help which was just, you know, hadn't happened. But once we'd sorted that out, we were on our way, you know, with charges of malicious damage. They were sort of just coming to terms with the fact that it was oil-based paint and the clean-up job was going to be fairly big. But we were released within, you know, four or five hours. And, and by that time, they were beginning to, what we later learned was paint the Opera House white to hide the red before removing both of those layers of painting. They were intent on hiding the message pretty quick, but, I mean, it was still up for a good four or five hours and, and it would have been blasted off straight away had we used um, water-based paint. They were ready to go. And that went worldwide, didn't it? Yeah, that was a sh another shock. I guess we had considered the ramifications of doing it on such a place, but for me anyway, I was just so nervous about getting it wrong or falling you know, the act of just pulling off the whole thing was so important to me. I, I could never really look ahead to what the response would be like and, until we were there. Um, but we we both had bail conditions to be out of the CBD or certainly out of the, the big end of town. I think the line right through the Archibald Fountain was our no-go zone. So we were allowed south of the Archibald Fountain but not north of it. And then big sort of circle around Darling Harbour and King's Cross. We got down to sort of the Haymarket area and there'd always been an arrangement. That, and what happened while we were up there was that Bush went on television and, and said, we're going. Um, told Saddam his time had run out. So there was always an arrangement for people to gather for a protest at Town Hall on the day hostilities commenced. So that was it. So that happened, and, and a few of us, Will and I, we went down to a pub in Haymarket and saw it on CNN, and it was then that we realised it had gone around the world. Now, I've got a snow dome at home. Do you? Yes. <laughs> Tell us about how that initiated. As things moved on into the, the ugly side of it, which was the court process, you know, inevitably ending in a custodial sentence with issues of compensation and cost of the clean-up started arising and we knew to some extent it was going to be big. There was crane hire and four or five companies involved in removing the message and abseilers and some fairly intense cleaning products. We knew we were going to have to fundraise and we sort of discussed it and there was a a fairly right-wing media waiting for us to not pay or try and get out of it or something. So there was one day we walked out of court and said, no, we'll we'll fundraise what's required. And that turned out to be just north of $150,000. 
which I guess back in the day was even more than it is now, we had to think of ways of fundraising. And the first thing I, I said to Will was, look, there is just a wealth of plastic opera house souvenirs out there from really kitschy to pretty good quality. We can just paint no war on those. And turned out we weren't allowed to sell them. So we had to ask for a donation. And for a certain donation, you get a certain item. So... We had a bit of a fantasy of doing it inside one of the snow domes, one of the snow globes, and that you know you shake and the glitter all flies around. But obviously, the breaking into those and writing a message on the opera house and putting it all back together was a bit of a challenge. But having got some colleagues at the CSIRO, we all had some pretty good brains to work out how to do that. <laughs> They successfully did that, and then we had a production line. It was good people could give something and have have something to remember us by, too. What happened to Will and his threatened deportation? On the day, as we walked away from the rocks with our bail conditions to be out of the area, we were walking away, and suddenly the police came and grabbed Will again, and took him back in. I had a few hasty words with him outside. You know, it was like they said it was an immigration matter, so we knew what that meant. Apart from our legal process with the charges, Will was going through his own, um, having to do interviews with immigration and justify the need for him to be in the country. And he's, you know, obviously he he was designing a a telescope as part of a joint British-Australian project. He was pretty important on that level despite the best efforts of some who really wanted to kick him out. And I I suspect that was Philip Ruddock and the Howard government. CSIRO had to convince them that he he was so important to their program, he shouldn't be kicked out. And, And that's what ended up happening. But it was awful stress on top of more stress for Will. But he made it through that. Custodial sentence? Yeah, there was a thing in New South Wales. I mean, it was a disastrous program in terms of of a corrective measure. It was a thing called periodic detention where if someone's offence or crimes, you know, they weren't really considered a threat to society, they but still worthy of a custodial sentence. You'd turn up at prison on a Friday afternoon in the or after work and you would be released sunset on Sunday. So they'd deny you a weekend. You'd be, be locked up for the weekend, but you were allowed out to work. They were pushing again for a, a full-time sentence. It was probably Will's, the need to have Will out and working for the CSIRO that again thwarted that effort. We received weekend detention, which we had to do for nine months, which I think was 42 weekends running. And it was kind of a weird program because people people would say to anyone in there, oh, you only got weekend detention. And it was true. It was great to get out for a week. But it, it was also pretty disruptive to your mental state to sort of serve a time in jail over a weekend and then get out. And all week you were thinking about approaching Friday. And it's pretty weird to, you know, in the car or on a train for a couple of hours heading, voluntarily taking yourself to jail. And so a lot of people had stuff-ups in that program and ended up in full-time anyway. You know, that every weekend someone would turn up having had a bit more alcohol or whatever to soothe the brain cells heading into prison. And, and they, you know, if they got 
breathalyzed and blew over as, as I think it was 0.02. You weren't allowed into prison, so there'd be the spectacle of a prisoner banging on the door, begging to be let in. And of course, at the end of that weekend, there'd be a group of, I think we were released in a sort of staggered times, but you know, upwards of 40 to 50 prisoners all together on a train wanting to live their weekend in a couple of hours on a Sunday night at the nearest pub. So that was just insane, having, you know, a group of 50 criminals of varying description running around town, drinking together. It wasn't safe. I, I suspect that could have been part of the reason they abandoned that program later too, but we went through it. That's sort of the immediate impact of that. What about a a more longer-term impact on you? It's funny because, again, at the time, you you only really looked forward to finishing doing the painting and making sure it all goes off safely, and there wasn't really a perspective of what was happening into the future. I mean, the Iraq war happened. That's what happened, and it was just as awful as everyone knew it was going to be, there were no weapons of mass destruction and hundreds of thousands of innocent men, women and children died and the real disgraceful point of Western colonial behaviour and and one that lasts to, to this day, the ramifications of it continue and continue. It's funny the action never really died. It was always being used in images of, which I guess reflected most people's desire for that time was that the invasion didn't happen. Yeah, it, it hung around and interviews continued and stories on it continued. Part of it was the subject of, of documentaries and, and there was always a bit of bit of business to attend to still there is around the whole event one one of our first things that we had to do was get our gear back you know after the the legal process and the, the our sentences were served all the gear that had been taken in evidence was was meant to come back to us but we discovered that there was an application to destroy it. We had to go and, and prevent that from happening in court and, and won. It was the only legal process we won the whole time was the right for our gear to exist. Um, and Will, Will did, did that with the help of a few letters from some, some Sydney museums saying, come on, you, you can't destroy people's gear just to erase the whole thing from memory. So, so first of all, there was a, a distinct hostility from the Opera House, which I noticed somehow that shifted when for the first time maybe three or four years later it was suddenly acknowledged in the history section of their website that the action had actually happened. So since then, you know, there's been some films and then it all blew up again last year because it was the 20th anniversary of, you know, both the war and our act, also the 50th anniversary of the Opera House itself. There was quite a lot of media around that. As it turned out, I think we we made the top five moments in the history of the building when they were announced. It was pretty funny because just after we we did the action, we made a list of the worst <laughs> events that ever happened on the Opera House. So, yeah, so we rocketed up the charts there, but the 20th anniversary saw a request from the Australian War Memorial to exhibit the gear we'd used. Something that bore thinking about because 
there's always debate around the Australian War Memorial and what it stands for. But, you know, a series of conversations with them convinced me it was a good place to keep it. I mean, I just had a paint pot and a big long roller pole and a encrusted paint roller and paint splattered Dunlop volleys travelling around with me for a number of years. They'd spent some time in Old Parliament House in the Museum of Australian Democracy there, but that exhibition had ended. So it was good they found a home and, a, a, you know, obviously in a place that memorialises those who went to war. It's quite a thing to have a protest acknowledged there as well. Spent some time last year down there just doing that and some media around it. I think in a few weeks there's going to be a show on the ABC um, looking back at how we did it. So that'll be with Tony Armstrong. I'm not sure when. On it goes. Well, finally, Dave, it's a hard act to follow. I mean, the act's hard to follow, but people, you know, there's always spectacular bits of activism dotted throughout history from year dot. You know, going back to what I was saying about the muddy, freezing grind of, of a losing or what you thought was a losing forest campaign, you might have a, be one of those people who produces a spectacular moment of activism that the, there's thousands of people out there at any given moment doing the grunt work and putting their bodies on the line and, you know, hats off to all of them. And many thanks to David Burgess for sharing his story with me. And I'm sure he'll go on to do much more in the future. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.